Hi, you're listening to a podcast brought to you by the teaching team at New Life in North Lincolnshire. New Life is committed to helping transform people and transform places through the love and power of Jesus Christ. We hope you, in some small way, will be blessed and transformed by this message. Well, good morning, everybody. This is my excited face, can you tell? As Elena said, I, I sometimes struggle to display my feelings that are on the inside, on the outside. Right? You may have noticed this about me this morning, but this is my excited face. This is my actual excited face with a smile and everything. Are you impressed? Yeah. How good was the big weekend last weekend? Just give us a quick wave if you were here, for whether it was the Friday, Saturday or Sunday. Fantastic. Now, I don't know about you guys, you'll have noticed this. I'm sure you'll have noticed this, but Chris and Casey, right? I don't know if we could have found two more joyful, enthusiastic, or smiley people on the face of planet Earth, right? So I'm very conscious now, as somebody who struggles to wear his emotions outside, that I'm following on from two of the people that seem to best display them outside. So you're going to have to bear with me a little bit this morning. But they just carried with them, didn't they? This sense of enthusiasm, of joy, of um, just life. And what was amazing for me, and I realized that as a member of the leadership team here, I'm in a bit of a privileged position, but we, we got to go out with uh, Chris to Pizza Hut on Saturday night, right? Which was amazing. But what was so good about that was that he was exactly the same in Pizza Hut as he was up on the platform, right? He was the same smiley, chatty, joyful. It wasn't like this was all a show for you guys, and then he was somebody completely different at Pizza Hut afterwards. It was just who he was. There was this sense of life, of fun, of joy about him. And Casey, you guys will know well, he carries that same sense, that same spirit, doesn't he? There's just something infectious about both of them that you want to just smile when you're around them. And I don't know about you, but I found myself smiling a lot more this week than I perhaps would have done otherwise. Maybe you've noticed the same thing. You see, you may well have heard us say from the platform here at New Life that while we take what we do seriously, we try not to take ourselves seriously. It's something that we try and hold in tension in everything that we do. But one thing that I've noticed in myself, and perhaps you're the same as me, is that I find it difficult to take seriously what I do without becoming serious. And I just wonder whether some, some of what God is trying to stir up within us as a church is just this idea that we can take something seriously without becoming serious. That we could it even be that we could be about serious work in a joyful life-giving way. Could it be that that's something that God is just trying to call out of us as a church at the moment? And so we begin this series. It's called Enjoy. And it's kind of a play on word. I, I guess you get the comedy of that. I'm, I'm, I, I like my words, right? So it's, it's one part enjoyment, and then the other part is kind of in joy. We want to live in this spirit of joy that we've seen displayed so well over the big weekend. Just something about that that you go, actually, if we could capture it and bottle it right, and take it forward with us, I think we would be better and healthier for us. And so as we were kind of discussing this as a team and trying to come up with a way to capture this in a series for us, the book that came to mind is Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. I don't know if you've read it, you may not have, but of all of Paul's letters, it's the one where he is just the most full of joy, where he's the most enthusiastic, where he's the warmest in his writing. You've got other books like Romans where he just goes on and on and on and on 
and on. And then you've got Galatians, where you kind of get, Paul is quite cross in Galatians. You may have picked up on that. It starts with literally, you foolish Galatians. Now there's an opener to a letter, right? But Philippians is different. Philippians is warm. It's joyful from start to finish. And that's not to say that it's not serious, right? There's some amazing things that Paul is working through with the church in Philippi through his letter. And yet in all of the seriousness of that work, there is just this overwhelming tone of joy. And so we're going to work through that together as a church over the next four weeks. Um, Elena and Mark are going to help me in weeks two and three, and then I'll be back up here to close it off at the end of the season. Um, But before I kind of go any further, there's just two disclaimers that I want to make. Is that all right? So two qualifying statements. The first one is this. You might have picked up on this already. I really love Paul. (laughs) And I particularly love Philippians. I had the privilege of studying Acts 16 and uh, most of Philippians for about two and a half years, right? So if I get excited this morning, and if I start seeming like there's more that I want to say, trust me, there is. But I will do my utmost and my best to keep to time this morning. Is that all right? So that's the first disclaimer. I love Paul. I love his writings. I love what he's about. There's something about him as a writer in the New Testament that just excites me. That I just, I get something of what he's trying to carry and what he's trying to do. The second one is this. And you may associate more with this one than the first one. It's okay to find Paul difficult. It's okay to struggle with him as an author. I mean, goodness, right? So Peter, one of the 12 disciples spent three years with Jesus, of all of that kingdom of God stuff rubbing off on Peter every day for three years. And even Peter found Paul difficult to understand. So I think we can let ourselves off the hook a little bit. Is that all right? And so it's my job this morning as a communicator, as a preacher, to try and help you with some of those frustrations. It's Elena and Mark's job over weeks two and three to help us understand this author who is traditionally seen as quite difficult to interpret, difficult to understand. And so we will do our best to keep it as simple as possible. Is that all right? So that's disclaimer one, I love Paul. Disclaimer two, it's okay to find him difficult. As somebody who loves him as an author, as a person, I still find him difficult, right? (laughs) So if I'm allowed to, if Peter is allowed to, you're allowed to as well. Is that all right? And so we begin. Acts chapter 16 says this in verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city. There's Paul, Luke, and a man named Silas. We went outside the city gates to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who were gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a trader in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. I don't know if you noticed how that passage starts. On the Sabbath, we went out and we expected. It's really simple, isn't it? And just thinking about where we've been over the last few months now as a church, considering things that Chris has brought over the big weekend, connecting that back into the here, there, and everywhere stuff that we looked at in the spring, there's just this sense of intention around Paul, Silas, and Luke that on the Sabbath, we went out and we expected to find. Goodness. 
if there's something in those first sentences of this moment in Philippi happening that we could capture, if there's something that I could replicate in each and every one of you as a member of the leadership team at the church, it would be that. Is that when we leave this place on a Sunday and we go out into our workplaces, whether that be the hospital, the steelworks, any other of sort of educational facilities, wherever it is that you work, live and breathe, if you could go out and expect to find goodness, what would this place look like in a year from now? And so they went out on the Sabbath and they found, expected to find a place of prayer. Now, a place of prayer is a bit of a strange translation, and I'm not going to get into the linguistics of it, but actually the, the literal translation is this. It's a place where people gathered to pray. So when we say a place of prayer, we imagine like a temple or an official building or somewhere that had like a meeting that people went to pray, right? Except what we've just read is, is they went outside of the city gates to a river where they expected to find a place that people prayed. And it's different. This isn't a gathered place. This isn't a place where people come to to pray. This is a place where people were going to, where they went as part of their every day. And while they were there, it was expected of them that they would pray. The difference is huge, isn't it? It's not just this place where people came to and we engaged in a service or in a prayer meeting and then we went back to our world. This was a place where people went, probably to do their washing. It's the first century equivalent of a laundrette. Right? I don't know if we still have those in Scunthorpe. It's the equivalent of my dining room. Right? <laughs> With a place where we do our washing, right? Except we don't make it a communal thing. I don't invite you around to do your washing in my house. That would be weird. But it's that kind of thing where, hey, we're going to do our washing on Saturday down at the river. Why don't you come with us? While we're there, hey, do you know what? There's some stuff that God wants to do here. Let's pray. And it's that kind of meeting. And it strikes me as significant that when Paul, Luke, and Silas turn up in Philippi, having never been there before as far as we know, there was a place that was known for prayer outside of the city. Never met these people before. And yet there's something about the way that they conducted themselves, even while they were doing their washing, <laughs> that meant that when Paul turned up and was looking for people who followed the same God that he served, that he wanted to tell about Jesus, he knew where to find them. I wonder in your workplaces, if a colleague needed prayer, would they know where to find you? Would they expect to come to you and be able to find a place of prayer. And so this is it really. This is the beginning of the church in Philippi. It's one message to one person. And from that, a church was born. Isn't that an incredible thought? I think sometimes we overcomplicate church. We overcomplicate what it takes to run church, to do church, to plant church, to replicate church, to be church. And yet, really simply, right at the beginning of this church's story, it starts with one message to one person. And that's it. One message to one person. And it transformed the landscape of a town. What message could you carry this week? What one person could you share that message with this week? And how might that transform their world? I'd just love to just pause for a minute just to pray. 
just to kind of commit what we've already shared and just that sense of what we're gathering from Acts 16 this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we have, each and every one of us, a message to share, a message of hope, a message of life. We ask that you would help us to find just one person over the next few weeks to share that message with and that we would see something of your transformative power at work in their life and that it would be an encouragement to us and it would be an encouragement to them. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so if you fast forward 10 years now, it was a long prayer, wasn't it? 10 years, right? So fast forward 10 years and Paul is writing to this same church. Lydia is still there as far as we know. So 10 years on, she's a leader in the church. Others have gathered around it and the church has grown from one message to one person to at a conservative estimate somewhere around 60 to 80 people in 10 years. That's great, isn't it? So there's now a pocket of Philippi that are following and worshipping Jesus. Ten years has gone by. The church has grown. Households have been added to their number. But they're a church that's facing difficulty. They're a church that's facing struggle. They're a church that's really on the brink of splitting in many ways. There is division all over the place. But that's not who they are, right? What we know about the church in Philippi is that they're a church that supported Paul faithfully. They were generous to him. They encouraged him. They sent him on his way. They looked after him. When he was in prison, we're going to hear a little bit more about that, they sent someone to him to look after him. Paul commends him to the church, back to the church. He sends him back in Philippians chapter 3. So they're a church that are with him. They're a church that are for him, that are encouraging him, that are invested in him and in his ministry and in the good news about Jesus, not just in Philippi now, but all across the Mediterranean world. They're an amazing church. And so Paul writes to them. And he says this, Philippians 1 verse 3 to 5 says this, I, think, I thank God every time I think of you. Are there Christians in your life that every time you think of them, you go, thank you, God, for them? I thank my God every time I think of you. I always pray with joy whenever I pray for you all because of your partnership in the good news about Jesus from the first day until now. And of this, I am convinced that the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion by the day of King Jesus And this is what I'm praying for you, that your love may overflow still more and more in knowledge and in all wisdom so that you will be able to tell the difference between good and evil. I don't know about you. I think in my early days as a Christian, and to be fair, seasonally now, I spend time in prayer going, God, help me to see the difference between good and evil. Help me to know what is good to be able to look at society and at my world and to go, that's good. And what I kind of get from Paul here is he says, Dan, that's, that's the wrong prayer. Because Paul says that if we are filled to overflowing in love, then we will be able to discern between good and evil. 
It's interesting, isn't it? We sort of go, well, when I know what's good, I'll know what to love or how to love. And what Paul says is, no, no, we've got it the wrong way around. If we're filled to overflowing in love, as defined by Jesus, then we will be able to discern the difference between good and evil. It's interesting, isn't it? I don't want to spend too long there, but what a thought. That actually what I, what I need as I go into my workplace, what I need as I go into society, what I need as I go into the world that is so broken and in need of healing, isn't discernment about what's good and evil. First, I need love. And from that comes the ability to discern the difference. Does that make sense? It's a really interesting thought, the way round that Paul has this. And so he starts, as we've just heard in this opening phrase, he talks about the Philippians' track record of being a church that have supported him, have loved him, have sent people to look after him. And it's because of that that he thanks God for them every time he thinks of them. It's followed up by possibly the most famous memory verse from Children's Church of all time. I learned it is that he who has begun a good work in you will continue till the day of Jesus Christ because we needed like a rhythm to learn anything when we were five, right? <laughs> but actually one of the things that I've discovered is that it's, it's more than that. It's not just he that began a good work in Dave or in Ken or in Phil or in Lucy. It's he who has begun this work among you. The you there is plural, not singular. And so Paul is writing to this whole group and saying, church, he who has begun this good work among you, I am convinced will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a work that God wants to do in Dan. There is a work that God wants to bring to completion in me. But there's also a work that God wants to do among us, in us, through us. And it's that that Paul seems to be picking up on here in these opening verses. Paul's context here, I don't know if you know, he refers to it a little later in chapter one. He's writing from prison. Now, I don't know about you, I don't know if you've ever received a letter from prison. I wouldn't expect it to read like this. <laughs> With that sense of joy and thanksgiving and overflow of love and gratitude. If I was writing a letter from prison, it would probably be a long list of things that I need or things that have gone wrong, if I'm honest. Right? It's like, oh, this happened this week. It wasn't great. Day number 365. Feels like being back in lockdown. <laughs> There'd be a list of things, that, of grumblings, if you like, and yet Paul here, where he writes to this church in Philippi, the only thing that you pick up on is joy. In fact, if it wasn't for the fact that he references the fact that he's in prison, would we guess that from the rest of the letter? Probably not, because he doesn't read that way. And so there's something about this good news that Paul has discovered, that Paul has shared with this church in Philippi, that they've bought into, that they've grabbed hold of and taken forward. There's something about this message that means that no matter the challenges and circumstances we face in life, we can live with a tone of joy. What an amazing thing. And I'm just conscious 
that as I say this, that there's something about this good news, this gospel, that means that Paul can live with a tone of joy, even in the most difficult of circumstances. And I'm, I'm aware of that. And I'm aware of there being a whole host of things that we could talk about of what that looks like or what, what that means for us in our communities. But my hope is, is that in setting it up this morning that Elena and Mark are going to speak into that more next week and the week after and then I'll be back up here to, to just add some final thoughts for week four. But before we go any further, I just wanted to try and work through something just with the time that we've got left. What is the good news? What is it? I imagine that if we took 10 of you up here right now and said, right, give us a definition, one sentence. It's got to be tweetable, 140 characters or whatever it is now. Go. I imagine we'd have at least 11 different answers. Right? Because it's so big. Mark, one of the authors of one of the Gospels in the New Testament, literally starts his Gospel. This is the beginning of the good news, the Gospel, about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then goes on for 16 chapters. Right? So not even Mark could bring it down into a sentence. And he's an amazing author. And so this is something that I struggle with. This is something that I come back to most years and go, what is it? What is it? At its most simple, at its most basic, what is the good news? What is this message that Paul carried, that he shared, that was the inspiration and source of his joy and faithfulness, even in the most difficult of circumstances. What is it that he shared with Lydia on that riverbank while she's doing her washing? What is it about that message? And I have a working definition for you. The reason it's a working definition is because it's changed over the last decade, and chances are it will change over the next decade. Because I'm committed to trying to figure out more and more what this message is, what it means for us today. Do you want to hear it? It may not be the definition you're expecting. Might be. The good news is this. That sin and death, sickness and injustice, and essentially all that is wrong with the world, has been defeated in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything. Sin, death, sickness, injustice, heartache, loneliness, loss. We could name a dozen more things easily that are things that are broken and wrong in our world today. And the good news is this. All of them have had their day. You go, but Dan, people still die. I know. Damn, people still get sick. I know. But our present reality isn't our final hope. Because the death and resurrection of Jesus was so significant, is so significant in the whole world, not just my life, but the world at large. It's so big that it's just taken a really long time for it to work its magic, to work its way out. I don't mean magic in like the, the magic sense of the word. You know what I mean? You'll allow me that. Right, so <laughs> it's just, it's such a big problem that this solution is trying to fix, right? The world is so 
damaged, so broken, that like major surgery, it takes time. But that doesn't mean to say that it's not already happened, that it's not already effective. We're just waiting for this course of medicine to run. And in time, all things made new. And it's that message, I believe, that Paul carried. It's that message that I believe Paul shared with Lydia on the riverbank. Was she clearly knew God, right? She believed in the same God as Paul, but she'd never met Jesus. And he goes, hey, you need to know this God that you follow, this God that you believe that is passionate about creation, passionate about his people, passionate about the world at large. Remembering that Lydia is, she's not from a Jewish community, right? So she already gets that God's passionate about the whole world, not just one part of it. And Paul says, there is life and there is light. And all of those things that are wrong have had their time. Is it any wonder then that Paul could be sat in prison writing to a church in Philippi with such a tone of joy? The biggest challenge of all, perhaps, and just, Sam, do you want to bring the band back up? The biggest challenge of all for us as we seek to now live in alignment with this good news. Paul says in Philippians 1.27, live in a manner that is worthy of the good news about Jesus Christ. We could say, live in alignment with the good news. Live in accordance with, live true to that message and the biggest challenge for me and perhaps the biggest challenge for you is that we so often refuse to consistently live in a way that prolongs injustice that prolongs sin that breeds causes or results in death it's the biggest challenge for me there's something in me we would call it sin capital S something in me that is somehow hardwired to prolong the injustice that Jesus has defeated to keep it alive to keep it moving there's something in each of us that wants to is hardwired to prolong the systems and powers of death in this world but the good news is is that though that is in me and that is in you day is done it's been defeated there is a new world that is being born in the midst of the old we call it the kingdom of God and at its best it breeds life it overturns injustice makes right all that has gone wrong in the world. When you close your eyes, I'm just going to finish in prayer. Lord God, as a church, may we be a people that consistently overturns injustice. 
may we be a church that consistently brings life where people expect to find death. May we be the sort of people that have been so grabbed by this good news, so grabbed by the message of your son, Jesus, that when we leave this place, we go and we expect to find. May we be known as people, as individuals, that in which and through which prayer can be found in the spaces of the world where our lives live. And by your grace and by your strength and by your spirit, would we see your kingdom come here in northern Lincolnshire as it is in heaven. Thanks for listening to this message from New Life in North Lincolnshire. To find out more, do visit us online at newlifechurch.uk or why not pay us a visit? We'd love to see you.